Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. We'll be covering the entire chapter this morning of Genesis 31. This is one of those scary chapters because it has 55 verses in it. But it'll go really rather quickly. Um, You'll see how the story flows, and it's all one story that we can probably work through rather, rather swiftly. So don't be intimidated by that. The sermon this morning I'm titling, Jacob and Laban Parted. Jacob and Laban Parted. We've seen for a number of weeks uh, Jacob, first of all, going to his uncle Laban, um, first of all, to get away from Esau's anger, his murderous anger, and second, to find a wife from among Laban's daughters. Well, um, Jacob did get a wife, actually two wives plus two concubines when all was said and done. The two wives, of course, were sisters, Leah and Rachel. Jacob had wanted to, he desired to marry Rachel. He had worked knowingly for her, he thought, and then he was tricked into marrying Leah on the wedding night instead. And so he had to, he was then allowed to marry Rachel as well, but he then had to, again, work just as hard as he had earlier when he thought he was working for Rachel. Then at the end of that, we saw, of course, there was this conflict between Leah and Rachel involving their, their maidservants, their slave girls as well, seeing who could have the most children. <laughs> and God worked even through that conflict to produce the 12 tribes of Israel, or at least the beginnings of them. But the uh, 11 at this point, 11 sons of Jacob with the 12th on the way later. And then there was this conflict about wages between Jacob and Laban after he had worked seven years times two (laughs) uh, for the two daughters. Uh, Jacob had uh, had told Laban what uh, he would accept as wages, and it was a certain um, a certain kind of livestock in the flocks. Um, If the goats or the or the sheep had a certain pattern on their coats, then those would be Jacob's. They would naturally usually be in the minority. But at any rate, Jacob and Laban agreed on things, and then Laban immediately cheated, as I hope you recall. And so there's this conflict going on between Laban and Jacob. Nevertheless, God works unusually to prosper Jacob. The more Laban tries to cheat Jacob, the more God prospers him. So... Um, that's the background here. And finally, we come to chapter 31 today where Jacob and Laban are going to be parted. We'll see how that happens. So as we look at the account in this text, let's look, first of all, starting in verse 1, at Jacob's plan to flee Laban. Jacob's plan to flee Laban. Reading starting in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying... Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So it notes, first of all, some motivations, some strong motivations on Jacob's part to get out of this situation where he has been serving, working for his now father-in-law, who is already his uncle, Laban. Laban's sons see that God is prospering Jacob against all odds, and they say something's wrong with this picture. (laughs) Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And so Jacob, it comes back to Jacob somehow through the grapevine, what Laban's uh, sons are saying about him. And Jacob can tell Laban really does not like me at this point. Laban had been happy with Jacob as long as Laban thought he always had the upper hand over Jacob. But when the tables turned, mm, the relationship was bad. So, verse 4, I'm sorry, um, what I meant to say was, there were motivations on Jacob's part to leave, but that's not why he left. Exactly. The, the primary reason why Jacob was going to leave now is that the Lord told him to. God said, it's time, Jacob. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. As Meredith Klein says, Jacob's call was like Abraham's, to leave this same idolatrous household and head for Canaan. Here's this pattern again. Leaving Haran and leaving the idol-worshiping family and going back to Canaan. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. And many think that's probably just an expression um, that Jacob's using of, he's changed my wages over and over. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. So apparently, um, Laban kept trying to change the real terms of the deal they already had. And whatever he said, God then made sure Jacob had more of those in the flock. So, um, verse 9, Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, for you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Pause there. Remember Bethel? Remember what we call Jacob's ladder? Jacob sees this staircase. Again, it's a dream at that point. He sees the staircase between earth and heaven, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And this is where God appears to him and 
gives his gracious promises to Jacob in the first place. Remember that? So that's what God is referring to here. He said, I am the God of Bethel, where Jacob had set up this memorial. He said, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Jacob had vowed uh, to God since God had, had promised to be with him and to prosper him, bring him back to Canaan and all that. Jacob had vowed basically once God had prospered him and given him everything that now he has given him, he would give God a tenth, a tithe. He would worship God with what God gave him. So God says, now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So God's letting Jacob know, no matter what Laban's done, every time he's done it, I, I have been in control of the process the whole time. And see, Jacob, I'm fulfilling my promises to you. Despite all odds, against all odds, I'm with you. And now it's time to go. So Jacob, notice Jacob had called Rachel and Leah out into a more private place in the field with the flocks to tell them all this. Now he wants their reaction. Are his wives going to follow him on this risky venture to get out of Dodge? To leave with all their stuff and head for the promised land of Canaan? Are they on his side? Do they think it's going to be worth it? Well, verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Andrew Steinman helps us out a little bit here, also understanding maybe part of what Leah and Rachel are saying. He says it was expected that when a father received a bride price, in this case he received a lot of work from Jacob for his daughters, when a father received a bride price, he would keep it in reserve to support his daughters and their children in the event that they lost their husbands. There was supposed to be some return made and, and, and um, inheritance stored up by their father for them, but they could tell dad doesn't care about us at all. He's just, he's just devouring whatever might have been ours for himself. Um, they say he sold us. He treated us as a commodity. And he's indeed devoured our money. And we can see that God is, is righting these wrongs by uh, giving our, our husband Jacob <laughs> all that, uh, so much that had been our father's. So they say, yeah, we're ready. We're ready to leave. Whatever God says, do it. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. So Jacob's on foot in charge of everything, but he, uh, he has enough wealth now to, to have his family ride uh, on camels, make the trip easier on them. Verse 18. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had <clears throat> gone to shear his sheep, uh, which means Laban would be occupied for some time uh, away from away from where they were. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. 
He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. As we'll see later, um, it was very true that uh, Jacob knew that Laban had this, this attitude that everything that Jacob had really still belonged to Laban, including, including Jacob's wives and kids. Jacob did not want to risk what Laban might do if Jacob told him, Dad, I'm leaving. He thought that would be dangerous. And so he waited until Laban was uh, elsewhere shearing the sheep. And that would take some time. Uh, it was a big operation. But in the midst of all this, Rachel does something strange. She decides, these little teraphim, as it is in the original language, probably very small figurines, um, these household gods to whom my dad prays and probably makes offerings, I'm going to take them. She stole her father's household gods. That was a bad move. Uh, why did she steal the, these idols? There's various opinions. Uh, some have the idea, others dispute this, some have the idea that we have evidence of whoever owned the household gods had a claim to the inheritance. Um, more likely, either she, either Rachel had some superstitious ideas about these gods that um, she didn't want her dad having the power of his gods when he came after them. Uh, maybe she wanted the power of these gods, or maybe she just wanted, maybe they were just made of some precious metal and she thought she could use them later. And again, remember, Ra Rachel and Leah have already said that they resent how much their father has taken away from them. So one way or the other, Rachel is deciding she's going to get what she thinks is hers, what she thinks she ought to have from her dad, and she's just going to steal it from him. Well, Derek Kidner writes here, once more in this story, the very act that hard-headed self-interest suggested led to the edge of disaster. We'll see later how Rachel could have lost her life over this. Jacob could have lost his life over this because of Rachel's petty theft here. We'll see that later. Well, so much for Jacob's plan to flee Laban. Now the plan's in motion. That was verses 1 through 21. Now, in verses 22 through 35, we see Laban's confrontation of Jacob. First of all, verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled... He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Or some translate that, from good to bad. <clears throat> and that, that puzzles, that little saying puzzles scholars a bit. But certainly there's some sense here of God warning Laban, you be careful how you treat Jacob. You don't mistreat him. You don't, um, and uh, yeah, you, you just handle Jacob carefully because he's mine. We at least get that idea from this. Now, about it, it mentions that um, Laban didn't hear that Jacob was gone until... The third day, again, he was at the sheep shearing. And for a sheep shearing, 
Um, that was a lot of work. It involved hiring a lot of laborers for the task. And it would have been very costly for Laban to drop everything all at once and dismiss all his workers before he'd finished and immediately take after Jacob. So there's probably a little gap here between the day he hears about it and the day he can actually um, start pursuing Jacob. But at any rate, this was a distance of about 350 miles between Haran and where Laban eventually caught up to Jacob in Gilead. And uh, But in 10 days, I'm sorry, in, in seven days, uh, Laban very swiftly catches up with Jacob once he gets going, once Laban gets going. Uh, 350 miles in, in seven days, that means you're moving really fast. Laban's moving really fast. Um, 350 miles, think roughly the distance from Salem, Oregon to just over the Canadian border near Vancouver, British Columbia. <laughs> That's a ways. But Laban is mad. He is, he is not going to let Jacob get away this easily. Verse 25. Now God's warned Laban in a, in a dream. What's Laban going to do? Verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. And Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? <laughs> oh, really, Laban? That's very... Uh, that should remind us of what uh, Jacob had said to Laban the morning he woke up with Leah, not Rachel, because of what Laban had done. Now the tables are turned, and Laban's the outraged one. What have you done? That you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Oh boy. Laban is accusing Jacob of dragging away his daughters against their will. You've taken them like war captives away from me. Wow, he's really pouring it on. Verse 27, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? I would have thrown you a big party. We needed a, go, a, a farewell. <laughs> Laban is playing the part of a generous but hurt father. He would have thrown a lavish party if he'd known of their plan to leave. Laban, the miser and the cheat who didn't want Jacob to have anything of his own. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's what he would have done. But that's what he pretends to save face. Verse 28. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. I understand you're probably homesick. But why did you steal my gods? First, Jacob's heard of this. Verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban. Uh, he starts by answering the first part of, of Laban's accusations. He says, because I was afraid for I thought that you would take my, your daughters from me by force. Jacob's not. Uh, going to pretend along with Laban here. I was afraid you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. 
Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Understandably, Jacob is really, I mean, this beats all. He is really upset that Laban is accusing him of this petty theft of his idols. And so Laban, I mean, Jacob, perhaps somewhat rashly, says, Look, if you find your idols with anyone in my camp, that person can die. Because he knows he doesn't have them. He doesn't know what his wife's been up to. So, intentionally, you're supposed to, the way the story is being told, you're supposed to feel the tension. Imagine what's going through Rachel's head when she hears this going on. Oh, no. (laughs) What's she going to do? One more thing about all these things Laban is throwing at Jacob. Uh, In in accusing Jacob of taking Rachel and Leah against their will, um, he's also attempting, again, in the way he's wording everything to, as, as Steinman puts it, subordinate Jacob's role as husband to Laban's role as father. Laban still wants to be the one who calls the shots, who owns everything and everybody in the situation. He's kind. That's kind of how he's talking here. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the the tent of the two female servants, Bilhah and Zilpah, but he did not find them. He didn't find his idols. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. I'm in my period. Um, Sorry, Dad, is it okay if I just sit here? (laughs) She knows how to work him. And not to excuse Rachel's actions throughout here, but isn't it fitting providentially that Laban is duped in such a way? After all, he's done in similar ways. Laban felt all about the tent, but not find them. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. How embarrassing for Laban. (laughs) Now, of course, it seems like Rachel's making this up, this excuse. But if Rachel had indeed been in heavy menstruation, anything on which she sat would have been defiled so there's some irony here probably some impolite humor directed at laban's gods laban's idols can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag or a filthy camel saddle for that matter but what would you expect of gods that get kidnapped right amazing that rachel think if rachel is doing this superstitiously Amazing that she thinks these gods can help her, even. (laughs) So I think there is some, yeah, some definite providential humor here. As Elijah might have said to Laban, look harder, for they are gods. Maybe they're daydreaming. Maybe they're making a pit stop. Maybe they got themselves lost. But Laban can't find his gods. So, verses 36 through 42, we've see Jacob's charges against Laban. 
Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And some say that the, the wording there is typical of sort of a courtroom setting. When someone is, is laying out their case <laughs> against the defendant. He berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set up here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. Often shepherds would have been allowed to eat the rams. Just leave one or two rams to, to mate. But often that would have been fine. But he says, I didn't even do what would have often been normal for a shepherd to do. And to, to have as his rights. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Again, knowing something about the ancient Near East, this was against normal custom of the day. The, the, the hired hand didn't usually have to cough up the loss himself. But that's how Laban had treated him, and he's saying it in front of everyone now. There I was, he says, verse 40. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. Because, you know, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, whatever happened to that flock was on Jacob, not Laban. So he had lost sleep. He had worked himself till he was exhausted. The heat, the cold... Verse 41, these 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Again, maybe that's literal. Maybe that's just an expression of their time that he constantly changed his wages. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. In your dream. Interesting how Jacob sums up all this as if God had not been on my side, I would have nothing. But notice what he calls God here. He calls him the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Another quote from Andrew Steinman. He says, Isaac's God is the God who can implant fear into the hearts of those who seek to harm his people. That is exactly what God did when he spoke to Laban earlier in that dream. Uh, th this phrase, the fear of Isaac, will show up once more in this chapter as a title for God. He is one to be feared, but that's a comfort to his people, to those whom he defends. The fear of Isaac. Well, this brings us, verses 43 through 55, to the covenant between Laban and Jacob. The covenant between Laban and Jacob. Verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob. The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters. Or for their children whom they have born. Come now. Let us make a covenant. You and I. 
and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid, which rhymes, of course, with Gilead, where they were at the time. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. All Laban is doing at this point is saving face, really. He's not admitting to any wrongdoing. Notice that. Not one word admitting to wrongdoing. In fact, he... he uh, doubles down on the idea that, Jacob, all you have here, all the people, all the flocks, it's really mine. But to save face and to not look like the jerky really is, Laban says, let's make a covenant. And Jacob agrees. And verse 50 um, he says, if you oppress my daughters, Jacob, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. It is Jacob, because of this covenant, God will take care of you if you ever wrong my daughters. Such self-righteousness and bluster. <laughs> Laban's warning to Jacob about mistreating his daughters, well, um, how ironic, how clueless. How has Laban treated his own daughters? He can't even bring himself quite, to quite say that his daughters are actually Jacob's rightful wives. Well, Jacob essentially, it seems, just ignores all Laban's ridiculous bluster. And he just goes through with the covenant. Verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Um, I'll pause there. Um, there's a plural verb here for judge, um, which probably indicates... Um, there's more than one God here that Nahor is calling on, put it that way. In fact, the, the Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. Um, verse 53, the God of Abraham and the gods of Nahor, the gods of their father, will judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So it does seem that perhaps uh, Laban is being polytheistic yet again, and he's He's calling on more than one God to be witness to this covenant. But Jacob only swears by the one true God, the fear of his father Isaac. Verse 54. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. So there was a covenant feast. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home.
That's the last we hear of Laban. One commentator says, because Laban found himself in a weak position, he wanted a covenant in order to protect himself from Jacob, whom God had defended. Reminds me of Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. What are some applications of this text? Interesting text. Great story, but... How are we going to apply it? Well, first of all, first application, the God of grace will end your afflictions at the right moment. Just as he did for Jacob. He'll end your afflictions at the right moment. After 20 years of bitter toil and mistreatment by Laban, the Lord said to Jacob, This ends now. It's time to go. And all Laban's bluster and fury couldn't stop it. God had accomplished the good purposes for which he allowed the affliction in the first place. Jacob needed the humbling. He needed the hard experiences. But now God's almighty power was bent on Jacob's deliverance. And once God decides to change your circumstances, nothing can stop that. So, the God of grace will end your afflictions at the right moment. There's a somewhat famous text from the book of Lamentations. As as the Jews are mourning the desolation of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, God's wrath poured out on his holy city. Horrible things have happened. And yet, in the midst of all that, the author of Lamentations recognizes that God does not simply like to afflict the children of men. He's not just a mean God. He allows affliction for a purpose. And yet he is faithful, even in the affliction, and he's faithful to remove the affliction when it's time. Lamentations 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to this abundance of his steadfast love for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Again, a figure of speech in the Hebrew. He doesn't do this from his heart. God does not just love to afflict and grieve people. He does what he does for good purposes. And he'll end your afflictions if you belong to him. He'll end your afflictions at the right moment. Or as 1 Peter 5 puts it to suffering Christians, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, 
strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of grace will end your afflictions at the right moment. Oh, but you say, will that moment ever come? What about all the sin and folly I see in myself and my loved ones and my entire situation? It's a nice thought that God will end my afflictions at the right moment, but is it really relevant? Does it really work in our messed up world? If you're afraid that God himself cannot or will not break the cycle of human folly and suffering in your life, it's just too complicated, you say, then the next point of application is for you. Second point of application is this. The God of glory will work his deliverance despite human folly. He'll work his deliverance despite human folly. Because of Rachel's petty theft and stupidity, Jacob could have been stopped literally dead in his tracks on his obedient journey to Canaan. And imagine the look on Jacob's face when he later found out that Rachel had stolen her father's idols. Imagine some conversations that might have happened at that point. (laughs) Now, if God were who we too often imagine him to be, just waiting to bring down ruin upon his children when one of them sins... (laughs) These unworthy thoughts we have of God in our hearts sometimes. If he were really that way, he might have said, Sorry, Jacob, this could have been your moment of deliverance. I would have sent Laban packing, but your favorite wife is just too much of an idiot. Sometimes that's how we think God is. That's not how he is. Now later, we'll even see Jacob later dealing with his household. This matter of the idols, burying them, (laughs) getting rid of them. That'll get taken care of later. But the God of glory will work his deliverance despite human folly. You see, God's amazing grace, his great plan of redemption and deliverance, both for Jacob and then for the world, (laughs) that was not going to be derailed by silly Rachel. And neither will God's plan for any of his children be derailed by human folly. Certainly, we must be sobered by our sin and not presume on God's grace. And there will be hard things when we sin. A careless attitude would indeed be folly. But when we see our sin, when we acknowledge it, we're broken over it. We must not despair either. We must not think. We must not think that our sin can stand in the way of God's deliverance. And that's good news when we realize that we and everyone we know are sinners. Everyone in your family is a sinner. Everyone in your church is a sinner. Every last Christian on earth still plays the fool sometimes. And if we could mess up the plan, we would every time. Which is why it's not so helpful to think as some Christians do of, well, there's this perfect will of God, but if we... If we do the wrong thing, if we mess it up, we may be permanently off track, off off somewhere, away from God's perfect will for our lives. That's it. No, that's not the way it works. If 
If we could mess up the plan, we would every time. But our sin is no match for God's grace that's at work in our lives and on our behalf. And Christian, the more seriously you take your sin, the more you'll need this truth every day of your life. Otherwise, you're going to be buried by despair. Well, either you'll be proud and not care about your sin. (laughs) That's another problem. Or you'll take your sin seriously, but then be buried by it. How could God ever smile on me again? How could he ever use me again? That's how you'll feel if you don't understand this, this truth. Psalm 130, I think, is a prayer offered from such a perspective. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If the Lord were simply in the business of giving us exactly what we deserved, every time we sin, he wouldn't have any any people left. (laughs) If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. As John Newton wrote in his famous hymn, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Third point of application. The God of justice will vindicate his servants in the end. The God of justice will vindicate his servants in the end. Again, that doesn't mean his servants are Free of blame. Jacob himself was quite the wretch when we started this whole story about his life, wasn't he? And he still had a lot of problems. And yet, God was his God by grace. And so, God would vindicate his servant Jacob in the end, before Laban. Psalm 37.1 tells us, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices, like Laban. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. 
Another text, Isaiah 8. There was much in Isaiah's time for God's people to fear. And many of those who were out with the God's people, who were part of the Old Covenant, Israel, uh, they were all wrapped up in what's the conspiracy that's happening against us? What are the evil plots that are going to destroy us? And yet, God says through Isaiah, to all, first of all to God's enemies, then to God's people. Isaiah 8 verse 9, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So do not fear Laban and his sons. Do not fear the rage of the enemy. Do not fear the folly of sinners. Let the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, be your fear. Be in such awe of God that all other fears must flee away. There's no room left for them. Emmanuel, God, is with us. He will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our justice as the noonday. He will vindicate us in the end. Fourth and last... The God of heaven will shut the mouths of haughty sinners. The God of heaven will shut the mouths of haughty sinners. He will shut their mouths, though they accuse his people. And though Laban attempted to charge Jacob with wrong and thus justify himself, God left Laban with nothing to say in the end. As Isaiah fifty four seventeen puts it, to God's people. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. <clears throat> God will shut the mouths of haughty sinners in their self righteous lies, as he did to Laban. But it's not just Laban that was caught lying about his supposed righteousness. All sinners will one day be exposed in their false claims of righteousness. Perhaps like Laban, you like to think of yourself as the righteous hero of your own story. The one everyone else has wronged. <laughs> you might even know how to sound very religious, as did Laban. Calling on the gods to witness to what he was doing. But if you face up to your deeds... Your lies, your schemes, your greed and hatred, your cruelty. You'll have to admit that like Laban, you are the antagonist in the story. You're a self-righteous and treacherous person. And I'm speaking particularly here to unbelievers. To those without Christ. Because we all come into this world self-righteous. We all think we are the hero of our own story. But if we face up to God's law and, and what we've done in response, we quickly need to realize 
we're not the good people we think we are. And one day, if you do not own up to who you are before God in this life, if you don't repent and cling to Christ, one day your mouth will be stopped in all your self-righteous excuses. That's what Romans 3 tells us. Romans 3, verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, or cobras, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sound like Laban? Paul is saying that's each one of us in our natural state. Next verse says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You know, it's a tragedy that though Laban's mouth was stopped on this occasion, he was still as hardened as ever in his stubborn selfishness and sin. He walked away the same sinner he'd always been. And how many will have their mouths stopped on judgment day? Only then to be ordered to depart into perdition. Their hearts forever set in their miserable wickedness. There'll be no heart change at the judgment. Just consignment eternally to that condition in which people are found. Will that be you? Your mouth stopped, but doesn't do any good anyway. Doesn't have to be that way. Own up to your sin before God now. Confess it. Employ him for cleansing, as David did in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Where do you stand with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Are you still like proud Laban, thwarted at every turn, but you still think you're going to come out on top in the end? You'll prove that you're the good guy. Or are you like Jacob, Sinful, weak, but you belong to God. And you have confidence in God as the fear of Isaac and the God of Bethel. Where do you find yourself today? This isn't something you can guess about. This is something which you must know for yourself. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, please bless your word as it's gone out today. 
Help us all to be humble before you, but trusting in you. Lord, I do ask that if there are those here who are still in their sins like Laban, <clears throat> that you will do much better for them than, than, than you did for Laban, that you will not leave them in their sins, but that you will give them new hearts. And again, I ask that you will be the thing, the person whom we fear in a good, wholesome way, in such a way that it drives all other fears away. Help us to, to have confidence in you and act on that confidence. And we thank you that you have not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on those who fear you. We thank you, Father. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has brought us to you and reconciled us to you. May we glory in this today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your hymnals and turn to number 56, please. Number 56. This hymn, number 56, it's a pretty old hymn. It addresses the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but particularly the Son of God, and asks him to pour his light, God's own light, on our lives. And there'll be many effects of that, of course. For instance, verse 4, Confirm our will to do the right, and keep our hearts from envy's blight. Let faith her eager fires renew, and hate the false, and love the true. So this hymn is emphasizing the fact that when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it'll change us. And it'll make us like, like God in his own image, like Christ. And that should be our desire as we have heard God's word and now we respond to it from our hearts. 